everyone, and welcome to another episode of the On Meaningful Work podcast. Uh, I'm here with Leila Jarulu in our little padded cell <laughs> between one fern. <laughs> yeah. um, so just a quick bio. So Dr. Leila Jarulu is an internationally known sustainability provoc- provocateur, sociologist, and award-winning designer. Uh, focused on systems thinking, sustainability science, sciences, and creative change making. She was named Champion of the Earth by the United Nations, Change Maker by LinkedIn, and is a main stage TED speaker who leads presentations with leaders around the world on activating positive change for a sustainable, circular, and regenerative future. As a serial social entrepreneur, she founded the Unschool, an experimental knowledge lab for adults developed the disruptive design method and is the CEO of creative agency Disrupt Design. Leila, <laughs> welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, so first question, like when when I read out that bio or, or when you're introduced and you know you hear that this is the short bio of you. People you know. often ask if I sleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I love sleeping. It's great. It's very important. Especially since you're just like this. Yeah, well. <laughs> that's right. But but what what comes up like like what 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 are the emotions you feel or Oh, that's interesting. That's, yeah. I'm always a little embarrassed because it does mm. sound like I'm five people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you've done. Yeah. I mean, more than five people. Yeah, worth, and yeah. but also as well, like I'm always proud. Like I'm very proud of the accomplishments I've managed to achieve. But mm. especially with some of the awards or recognitions, like the Champion of the Earth one, mm. it's definitely kind of a bit hilarious because mm. um, it is the highest accolade that the UN Environment Program offers and they <clears throat> give it to six people every year and I didn't even know about it and when mm. I got the special call about it, I had to Google to make sure that it wasn't like a prank call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would make an excellent prank call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've been, the head of the UN has nominated you as Champion of the Earth. Yeah. Do you accept? And I was like, um, is this an actual thing? You and Iron Man and Captain America. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. You've won all of these <laughs> awards. So yeah, no, it's, it's definitely um, mm. always a bit awkward when <clears throat> somebody chooses to read a full bio and I'm like, oh, no, that's not why it's there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's for reading, not, re- yeah, yeah. not reading out loud. But yeah. mm. um, so, you know, speaking of then Avengers and superheroes, like every superhero has an origin story. Mm-hmm. So what's yours? Like, where did you grow up? Where were you born? Yeah, so yeah. I, was, I was born in Sydney. Yeah. Australia mm-hmm. for the international listeners um, and I grew up there until I was like I think I was 21 and I moved to Melbourne mm. so Melbourne is my adopted oh wow okay city of residence in Australia yeah. and whenever I return home to Australia it mm. is to Melbourne mm-hmm. very controversially yeah. <laughs> um, I lived mm. here for a decade before mm. I went off um, overseas mm-hmm. uh, to start a world-changing organization that was Mm. my goal and I didn't know what I was doing so I just like went and then ended up landing in New York where I just decided to stay because people walked faster than me and that Mm. was the first time I'd ever experienced where people move faster than me because I'm quite a fast mover Mm. not just in how I physically move but how I like to get things done and there was a lot of energy and and a lot of support for entrepreneurship there in New York yes a lot more than in Australia you know we have the tall poppy syndrome here it's a very Mm. um, unfortunate reality and gender issues also play into that but in in New York I found this hilarious thing where I tell people I had a startup idea and they'd be like Mm. great 
hey, what do you? What can I do to help you? Whereas yeah. here, they'd be like, oh, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> yeah. Something bad might happen. Yeah. And so that energy was extremely important for me, and mm. in, in kind of going out further in my entrepreneurial activities. Mm. Um, and I actually had to take like a whole period of time to try and like deprogram my tall poppy syndrome. Mm. Um, and now when I come back to Australia, people just think I'm really arrogant because I'm like, I've learned all of these great tools of how mm. to like advocate for yourself and how to collaborate and how to ensure that, you know, ideas become action, which unfortunately still hasn't really kind of become a solid part of the Australian innovation ecosystem, which I would mm. love to see change. But, um, you know, mm. there's those... Victorian roots or something coming through. Yeah. So before that, though, so you did your schooling in, in Sydney? I did, yeah, yeah. I did my schooling in Sydney. And then I went to Enmore Design Centre to mm -hmm. study product design, which I quit after two yeah. years. And then I moved to Melbourne to study at RMIT. That's yeah. why I came down here okay. to study social science environment. And wow. then I did, ended up spending 10 years at RMIT working as a researcher at the Centre for Design and then mm -hmm. by doing my PhD and teaching cool. in the industrial design program, yeah. Um, and w what were you like in school? Like as a, as An a asshole. <laughs> AKA future entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> very loud, very boisterous, mm -hmm. always the class clown. Mm -hmm. I had, two, I had enough energy for five people. Yeah. This is why my bio sounds like five people. Mm -hmm. But also I was always bored. Mm -hmm. um, so I loved the creative subjects like drama, mm -hmm. Um, and art and anything where I was like physically engaged was mm. great for me because that's how I learn like in a very experiential way mm. but things that required tests or writing like writing I have mild dyslexia so it was always really difficult and then I would just be like really cheeky mm -hmm. and I, so my report cards would always be like Layla has a lot of potential if only she would focus <laughs> <laughs> basically AK is she yeah. shut up yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, and I did struggle a bit, actually, mm. in certain parts of my schooling because I think with traditional education, it's very, well, it's cookie cutter, right? And mm. um, there was a period where I had some, like, bad teachers who I didn't get on with early on, and that really kind of traumatized me in mm. the sense that I, I really took it on myself that there was something wrong with me, and it mm. took a while to kind of get over that. But I think the key thing with education for me was um, the things, when I found things that I loved, mm. I did extremely well. Mm -hmm. Like, I got top 10% of the in the state for design. Mm -hmm. But things that I was like, that were very traditionally taught, mm. I really struggled with, right? Mm. Like um, I loved math, but then mm. when I got into high school, it was so boring, mm -hmm. so boring, <laughs> that I just, I literally remember in year 10 mm. going, I'm never gonna use this, I'm not gonna learn any more math. And yep. I just stopped my brain from learning it, which is was a bit annoying when I went to design school and was sitting in an engineering class going like, oh shit. Yeah. Really oh, should have listened Your to ten maths. Come back <laughs> I was to me. Like <laughs> Pythagoras theorem is actually really useful. <laughs> I wish I'd listened. Yeah. But yeah, so I didn't do extremely well in high school because by the time I got to the end of high school I was like, whatever, just give me the piece of paper, let me out of this prison. Mm. Um and then I got into design school and I really, really loved it, but I quit because I was learning how to essentially reinvent, um, you know, a lot of the world's problems rather than solve them. Mm. And so I ended up studying sociology. And this mm. is like a classic story because so I had a, I didn't do very well, like on my mm. university entrance thing. Mm. Um, and I was quite bored in school when I got into social science, which is all like reading, discussion, debate reflection, writing, mm. I just flourished. And I got mm. the University Award for Academic Excellence. Wow. I know. That's crazy. <laughs> I went yeah. From like a struggling <laughs> student to like full HDs. Yeah. So, so, so you mentioned a couple of things. So firstly, um, 
actually, before we get to design school, was there, say something, was there an incident that happened that you look back on in your childhood that you think that that makes sense as to, you know, it makes sense, I'm doing what I'm doing now because of what happened? Um, I mean, we are all very complex beings filled with multiple experiences and layers. But Mm. I think that for me, like caring about the planet, as Mm. my work tends to be in now, started with me caring a lot about people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my mom's favorite story is to tell me during the 40-hour famine when I was a kid and never quite getting through it, but still managing to, like, collect all the money in the street. Mm. Um, But, uh, you know, there was definitely a very strong humanitarian interest from a young age like Mm -hmm. and also animals and like a very kind of empathetic to living things Mm -hmm. um but i would say there was like a couple key experiences that happened early on Mm -hmm. as a young adult so um when i was uh in design school Mm -hmm. uh when i was like 19 or something um i also was volunteering with the refugee committee for amnesty international because mm-hmm. for those of you who are international and don't know about australia's horrendous horrific history and current behavior towards refugees who come to australia um we have a tendency to uh do extremely inhumane things to mm-hmm. them and sure. put them in detention centers in the middle of the desert or send them to remote islands that we funded essentially detention centers to be built on so i was extremely distressed by this system of, of mm-hmm. what was going on and so uh at the time i started pen paling with a young woman who was um in the the detention center in the middle of the desert in Australia, which I can't mm. remember the name of right now. And she was a young Iranian woman and she was a similar age to me. And we were just, we I think we exchanged maybe four or five letters. <clears throat> and in that process, like we were just chit-chatting like you would do, like what are your interests, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I had this really profound experience, which was that she and I were very similar. Like I think she wanted to study education, but she was very interested in like elevating herself <laughs> you know, like Mm. any young person tends to be. Um, And it really struck me as really profound that there are certain people in the world who get to live in a more free, open, um, Mm. and and then get more opportunities than other people. And that it made me feel very responsible for the freedom that Mm -hmm. being raised in Australia and had given me. Mm. Um, You know, my father's Turkish and, Mm. you know, my mom decided that she wanted her girls to be raised in Australia. So that's how we ended up um, moving here from Turkey. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like that really kind of... mm, sat with me and Mm -hmm. and the kind of way it manifested itself was I have a voice and Mm -hmm. for if I was in that position I would want people like me being outside of that position to help Mm -hmm. use their voice to advocate for these kinds of problems and challenges Mm -hmm. um in the end I never like she never responded to a letter and I think she was returned Mm -hmm. which was a very common thing that happened so it really just struck me as far as like agency and Mm -hmm. um opportunity and like I always say now for every one of me there's like tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of women Mm -hmm. who are equally capable but the systems of the countries that they live in do not enable them to be educated Mm -hmm. or speak for themselves or make choices that don't involve them ending Mm -hmm. up having to be you know, uh, less uh, mobile in their life choices. So, mm. you know, that's something that I carry with me a lot still to this day. Yeah, wow. I, I mean, you know, it's 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 funny that we, we're sitting at this point in history where, you know, speaking of Iran, there's, and speaking of people's agency, that's really coming to the fore now, especially with women in yeah. Iran. And, you know. I mean, it's mm. profound, mm. I think, because 
you know, for those of us who've been socialized in Western countries, we think we take freedom for granted. We take the mm. freedoms that we are in, we are given by our the culture and system around us as if they're given and they're going to be here forever. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case because Iran was also an extremely liberal place in the 1970s. You know, mm -hmm. my mom went hitchhiking through the Middle East in a miniskirt yeah. in the yeah. 70s, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's how she met my father. My mom's mm -hmm. British. So, you know, it was definitely, it's definitely like a very, it's, it's like I always say anyone can be a refugee at any point, mm -hmm. you know, with climate change as well. Mm -hmm. We'll have people from, you know, so-called advanced, you know, economies ending up as refugees mm -hmm. because of the fact that we, they will lose their, their, the physical land that they, they live on or they're, they're forced to, to move, migrate, etc. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's like certainly the, the perception that Australia had and still continues to have mm -hmm. against these like what we would call boat people, which mm -hmm. is just so whatever derogatory mm. um and this idea that it's like an us and them thing i just found it so um tragic because you know that's also the kind of mentality that enables um people where minorities or you know whether it be people mm. for, with different abilities or gender whatever mm -hmm. to be controlled or contained by the way the system wants them to be, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so we just want everybody to be in this space because it's easier and safer for those of us who have power to mm -hmm. continue to maintain it. Um, so in societies where minorities or people who have traditionally not had access to power are able to elevate themselves, you get this really <coughs> incredible transformation. Mm -hmm. And I think, and you know, my, my heart and soul goes to all of the women and men who are currently mm -hmm. risking their lives in Iran to help to uh, crack open that extremely restrictive mm -hmm. and... Um, tragic situation yeah sure um actually there is so do, doing a little bit of of research before this chat i came across i mean you've spoken at ted and tedx quite a few times but in one of your tedx talks i think you mentioned that you want a road trip and then um and then I think it was your friend's mum who mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell the story? Oh, when I was like five. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. This is a funny story. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, well, in Australia, growing up in the eighties, you had the hole in the ozone layer was a huge issue, like a big hmm. environmental issue, um, and specifically because the UV uh, here was so high that you would get like the increase of skin cancer, et cetera. So uh, I was like five or something. And I, mm. th I don't think we were on a road trip. I think I was just getting dropped off at school or something. Okay. Yeah. But I so remember this like mm. really old 1970s car and I was mm. clearly not wearing a seatbelt, um, sitting in the back. And the mum was telling me all about this hole in the ozone layer and that it was going to kill us all. And so I was like petrified. Like mm. I, I remember it so vividly. Like my little five-year-old brain was like, I don't want to die from mm. the hole in the sky kind of mm. thing. And so um, I start like coming up with solutions, which mm. is basically how I operate. And I had three. Mm. Uh, one was to hide under blankets. Uh, she said that was Blanket fort. She said that yeah. was probably not going to work long term. My mm. other idea was just put like sunshades up, like you yeah. know in school how they have sunshades. It's like we could just build sunshades everywhere that will protect us. Mm. Apparently, she said that was unfeasible as well. And then my third was to just live inside forever. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pop vitamin D pills. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I didn't know what that was at five, right? So, you know, they weren't sophisticated mm. solutions, but yeah. nonetheless, she, she shut them all down. Mm. Um, but it stuck with me, this idea that, like, you know, there was this big scary thing going on that was going to threaten my future, which mm. I think is a lot how a lot of young people feel right now with climate change mm. and, and the climate anxiety. But a beautiful story on this is that, mm. yes, it had a big impact on me. Mm. Um, and then 
at the 30th anniversary of the Montreal Protocol, which is mm -hmm. the landmark environmental legislation signed by you know 196 members of the UN to phase out CFCs that were in mm -hmm. hairsprays and deodorants and um, refrigerators that were mm -hmm. causing the hole in the ozone layer, I was invited to host a roundtable with nine of the world's um, leaders on why it was such a successful intervention. That's so it was incredible. Like, yeah, it's like yeah. this full circle. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> So uh, uh, I went to the 30th anniversary of the Montreal Protocol in the UN and got to interview nine world leaders yeah. about like why was this successful and it was yeah. really fascinating because you know my work now is really about like how do we tra make transformative change yeah. and that sticks and that you know is intrinsic versus extrinsic mm. and there was some really interesting things that came out of that discussion about like collaboration between countries and, and mm -hmm. innovation as being mm -hmm. the key thing because you know these companies have to very quickly um, change from the CFCs to something else right mm. so because I mean just staying on that for a second before we get back to you it, that seems like a fascinating distinction between the ozone layer and climate change because the Montreal uh, thing happened and then it, it seemed that things happened really quickly after that. Yeah. Things were put into place. Yeah. And now... That's and the hole in the ozone layer is recovering. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How, however, <laughs> there's always a kind of caveat. Yeah. Um, hydrofluorocarbons, mm -hmm. they're, they're a big contributor to climate change, which I think they were part of the solution set. If I remember correctly, I'm not a scientist, so... Uh, mm. Chemical scientist, I mean, but I think that HFCs are a problem for climate change, like mm -hmm. quite a big one. So actually, that was discussed at the Montreal Protocol that they need to adapt the protocol, which is still in place, mm -hmm. to include the mm -hmm. climate change causing gases that were put in place mm -hmm. afterwards. So yeah, but but I think w what's extraordinary is that uh, that that the ozone layer thing happened so quickly, but then climate change comes along, and then there's Kyoto, there's Paris, there's Copenhagen. Yeah, but there's a, the climate yeah. change is. Well, there's a number of things here. First mm. of all, you had very clear correlative relationship between the physical products mm -hmm. and the impact. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, there was very easy for them to say hairsprays, refrigerators, you know, aerosols. They're the the, the kind of boogeyman that we need to mm -hmm. to create create change in. Yep. And it was a, not a huge number of products. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas climate change is embedded in absolutely everything. everything Our yeah. entire economy is lubricated by fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And whether it be like that cup of coffee or, you know, the server power that you guys are listening to this for through, mm -hmm. that has a carbon footprint or a, an impact on the planet. And so, and then the, the, the thing is, is it's not just carbon emissions that are problems. It's also methane. It's mm -hmm. also the hydrofluorocarbons, mm -hmm. nitrogen. Like there's mm -hmm. all of these nitrous oxide. There's all of these different factors. And so the agriculture sector is a huge contributor to climate change with mm -hmm. the nitrous oxide from, you know, so it's like it's such a kind of um, um, integrated part of our economy mm -hmm. that you can't just pick one part and go let's all like figure out how to solve these five products or 20 mm -hmm. or whatever it was with the Montreal Protocol mm -hmm. so that that kind of complexity is I think why there's been so much resistance but also the difference between the fossil fuel industry and the power that they wield as far as the economy and governments mm -hmm. um, goes versus like the heating and cooling sector, which mm -hmm. is basically the main contributors, yep. is kind of a different weight. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, and the, the the oil and gas industry has known about climate change for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. They've known, I mean, it's mm -hmm. basic science. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's an interesting story, actually, 
because so so what got me like as an adult interested in sustainability so yes I had that experience as a kid but mm. obviously I didn't put two to two together <laughs> for a while <laughs> I was only five you were you were five yeah, yeah. but yeah. you know and also I had no real like my mom's a bit of a hippie but I didn't get any like true environmental education like in high mm. school or mm-hmm. I don't remember being taught anything about nature mm-hmm. I don't remember being like given any like experiential wonderment about the possibility of the universe just mm. I got taught some pretty standard stuff so then when I was in design school and I was like I think it must have been the second year and one of our professors like opens you know the this textbook and I remember it being one of those terribly small printed textbooks with mm-hmm. like double columns and small mm-hmm. pictures and like <laughs> really dense and he had just said, like, we're going to learn about this thing called the Gaia theory, which is that mm-hmm. everything in nature is interconnected, which was proposed by James Lovelock, who is mm-hmm. a scientist who um, is like a renegade scientist. You know, he, he basically used to work for NASA and he figured out how to measure the, um, the life on planets based on the atmosphere that mm-hmm. was kind of being radiated from the planets. You can tell mm-hmm. out w- what kind of life was going on. And then um, he actually was really critical in discovering some of the science behind the hole in the ozone layer, mm-hmm. right? So he mm-hmm. was really critical in that. Um, in the 1970s, he actually identified CFCs and mm-hmm. started to do that correlative relationship. But for years now, he's been like, you know, basically a scientist out of his shed in the mm-hmm. UK, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he actually died recently. Um, but he, he, anyway, he was an incredible, um, this, this idea of the Gaia hypothesis or theory Mm -hmm. is that the earth is a living organism the Mm -hmm. entire planet Mm -hmm. and its atmosphere is like how it breathes and Mm -hmm. and it sounds kind of woo-woo but this is like a hardcore scientist who was able to prove it and prove that basically everything on the planet is interconnected Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. actions have reactions Mm -hmm. and i'm sitting in this class and this guy's just like rambling on about this stuff and it was truly like my brain exploded so just just to place us this is when you were at uni yeah, yeah, well, I was at design school design in Enma, yeah. and I oh, yeah. and I it was my engineering class, mm-hmm. and that professor was very old. Mm-hmm. I cannot remember his name, <laughs> but I do, and we were sitting in like a demountable, like, yeah. you know, one of those like <laughs> yeah. really ste- a little bit like this, a like very this, sterile this might, environment. This might bring back some memories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was hilarious because he's mm. he's saying this, and he's going, you know, so he, he I think he gave some example of interrelationships between like mm. environmental impacts and human choices mm. but he also did it very briefly like it mm. wasn't like a detailed class so I yep. remember my whole like perception of the world changed in like a minute that's extraordinary it was yeah. extraordinary and also because I'd remember I remembered hearing about like the butterfly effect yep. and it was like mm. these two things kind of came together and I was like well this makes a lot of sense mm. but it was like and I remember turning to the rest of the class and like completely freaking out which was not abnormal for mm. me yeah. um <laughs> But, you know, I was one of two girls in my mm-hmm. design program and um, and I turned to the rest of the class, which were all boys, and I was like, mm. oh, my God, guys, what are we going to do? Like, mm. and this kid sitting next to me, he was like, Layla, I don't know why you're freaking out. It's not like, and I know this word for word, right, because mm. it's so etched in my brain. It's not like any of these catastrophic environmental impacts will affect us in our lifetime, so why should we care? Wow. Right. right. And, and, and that boy grew up to be the prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, he probably grew up to work for a car company because a lot of young people mm. studying industrial product design mm. are either into cars or furniture, it seems yeah, to yeah. be. The, you know, I was motivated by how inefficient remote controls were. Mm. I was so frustrated by all the buttons. Yep. And it also seemed to me that, like, design was a really fun and interesting career where you get to solve problems mm-hmm. um, that seemed, like, way more interesting to me than... Mm. 
other things. But anyway, mm. so I had this experience and it, it really was like bef- the before experience and after experience, mm. my life was completely different. And it was because it made so much sense. Like yeah. this idea that everything's interconnected and that nature is this like we are part of nature and that the whole planet's an ecosystem. Like it was so it – fi- it fitted so um, – like nicely Mm. but it also annoyed me that I had no idea about this Mm -hmm. so I go off to the library as one did in those days Mm -hmm. and I got books there was like a section this big in the library on Mm. like eco design which is what it was called then Mm -hmm. and I got hired whatever books I could get and then proceeded to read them and like I remember in another class with that poor guy mm. who else he was teaching us about how to make glass. I remember it, you know, you have to like molten glass. It's like really energy intensive. I was reading, I think it was a Hawkins book mm-hmm. on like the interconnected relationship of nature and like it was about the salmon and the bears and the trees and the mm. forest. And I like started crying. I was mm. like, Oh my god, it's so so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I was really yeah. profound. Like those couple of weeks really kind of, you know, and I read Victor Papanik, which yep. is a guy who really kind of was the first modern designer to like hold design world accountable mm-hmm. for the influence and impact that they have on the world. Uh, he calls cars death machines, etc. So all of this stuff came together and I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I am not going to design crap anymore. I'm mm-hmm. only going to design like eco products so that mm-hmm. was my like stance and so then every brief I got in every class I was like I'm going to make this an eco product and the teacher would be like whatever Layla yeah. I mean by this point they were probably like whatever Layla because oh, the yeah. pain in the butt student was also <laughs> present in <laughs> university level as well mm. as the high school level and it was funny because I remember like we got like our CAD class where you're learning how to do computer aided design we had to make an internet connected device mm-hmm. this was in the like early 2000s and I was mm-hmm. like this well, who wants a refrigerator that talks to the internet that makes yeah. no sense to yeah. me yeah. so well, I was yeah, yeah internet <laughs> of things was just burgeoning so um, and then I was told that I would fail if I didn't follow the brief specifically because that's mm-hmm. what you get taught in design school so anyway whatever I started making a whole bunch of very like bad designs like intentionally mm-hmm. like we had a brief it was very common in design school to get a brief where you get a piece of cardboard and you have to make a chair this mm-hmm. is very standard mm-hmm. design school actually this was before I had my epiphany mm-hmm. I think I was just a complete pain in the ass from the beginning <laughs> because m- our professor wanted to make it like interesting so he said you had to design it for either a Bondi beach party think mm-hmm. about it cardboard mm-hmm. at the beach with yeah, sand yeah. <laughs> or for a desperate and dateless ball which was a thing in the early 2000s wow. in Sydney Truly, called de- before yeah, Tinder. Before, well, these yeah. were these big parties that were thrown for people, and it was like a kind of well, desperate culture. And dateless. Yes, truly called so you that. Self, you self-identify as desperate and dateless, and you go to a big party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was before okay. Tinder. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what yeah. else are you that supposed to do? Yeah. So anyway, so mm. I was like, okay, fine. I'm su- this like I was such an asshole. Mm. I designed a giant groping booth. <laughs> <laughs> truly. Yeah, truly. I mean, I do not encourage sexual harassment in any way, shape or form. Mm. But I was like, what else happens at one of these? It was like a kissing booth, but it was like an anonymous one. Mm. So you could go behind the screen and sit if Mm. you so chose and somebody could choose to get a feel. Yeah, wow. And I got a high distinction for that. (laughs) Not because of my design, which was really ugly, but because I fulfilled the brief. Okay. Okay, so the brief told said it had Mm. to hold 100 kilos of someone sitting and it had to be fit either one of these scenarios and Mm. it fit perfectly for Mm. the context. Yeah. So reluctantly, I received high marks. Mm -hmm. But like the teacher was like, (laughs) 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 and that continued. I made a toilet paper recycling machine. Okay. Yep. 
That was a machine like that... Like for used toilet paper? No, to... Okay. Um, which, yeah, would, it's kind of a bit gross. No, for turning cereal boxes in your house into okay. toilet paper. Yeah. I mean, I just made a whole bunch of random shit, mm. to be completely honest, but yeah. But, but, but I suppose that's, in a way, that's a microcosm of how the world works and that, like, for most engineers or designers or whatever, like, you do your job, you get a brief. Oh, yeah. You have to follow the brief. Like, that's mm. also one of the terrible things about the transition to sustainability or the circular economy is that mm. a lot of people are restricted by the the requests on them. And so mm. I'm always advocating for designers to do subversive design, mm -hmm. which is like figuring out how to work within the the kind of, you know, nuances of what they're being requested to get a more sustainable solution to their mm. clients. But also redesigning the brief where possible is critical too, because a lot of the time, especially if you're in a consultancy situation, mm. someone will come to you and say, we just want a better, faster, sexier, cooler version of X, yeah. right? Yeah. And so the, the form is already like locked in. Mm -hmm. But like if you take any consumer household product, a kettle, a, a, you know, a hairdryer or, you know, a remote control or a refrigerator, mm -hmm. their form is just repetitive. Like mm -hmm. people, this is the whole thing about iteration versus disruption, yeah. right? Yeah. So what happens is they come in and they say, oh, well, you know, so the, the iPhone was a truly disruptive product in the mm -hmm. sense that this had not been done before. Mm -hmm. And we were all mm -hmm. still stuck using our thumbs to text um, rather than our fingers. Yeah. And, you know, Nokia had come up with a similar product. They had mm. tested it. The The consumer base were quite freaked out by it. And so they chose not to go to market, which mm. was the death of Nokia, basically. Yeah. Um, mm. So I always tell clients, don't be Nokia when mm. it comes to sustainability, because we are now in this extremely critical time where not just because of the SDGs or the climate challenge or the waste crisis or the biodiversity crisis, but mm. like the value, I call it the values economy. Like mm -hmm. people do not want to work for companies who do not represent their values. And it's mm -hmm. very rare to find an actual human who believes that we should destroy nature mm -hmm. because they have in built in them the understanding that we all need nature to survive. Mm -hmm. How people, how like present people are in that as a reality versus just a kind of intuition yep. is, you know, that's the problem is like you can mm -hmm. have that as a reality but not actually have the tools or the language or the ability to kind of action mm -hmm. anything on that. But so this, this kind of lack of... Um, willingness from a lot of big players yeah. to completely reimagine the functionality of products and services mm -hmm. so that we can deliver them and the value that they offer mm -hmm. so the, the functionality is delivered but it's delivered in a completely new way mm -hmm. and that's really what the kind of proposition of the circular economy is is like not to stop delivering value mm -hmm. so it's not go back to the dark ages it's yep. deliver value to eliminate waste, mm -hmm. to cycle materials through the economy in a sustainable and regenerative way, and mm -hmm. to figure out how to create beautiful experiences that mm -hmm. get the needs of humans met and customers met mm -hmm. and economically viable for the company, but in a completely new way. Yep. And that's really the reason we have some really amazing um you know, upstarts mm -hmm. who are completely breaking the barriers and boundaries and mm -hmm. a lot of existing companies who are like, Ooh, this mm. is, <laughs> yeah, what do I know about this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like a very interesting time. So there, there is one thing we have in common and that's the use of the term disruptive. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm guessing you've heard of Clayton Christensen. Yes, and, yes, of course. Yeah, and, uh, I, and that's, I suppose that theory, disruption, innovation theory is inspiration for me because mm -hmm. it, because it's really about not just following the status quo and making status quo 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. Mm -hmm. It's really figuring out where is there no value and how can we provide value there? Mm. And then from that, 
you know, move up the chain. Well, so from what I understand with Clay's proposition, Mm. and he's written extensively about like how Uber is not a disruptive innovation, right? So these ideas of who calls themselves disruptors, he's Mm. like, technically, according to my theory, which is kind of great. But from what I understand is that, yeah, it's about identifying um, markets that are not currently, for lack of a better term, exploited. Mm. um, Or served. Or served, thank you, yeah. (laughs) And then finding solutions, entirely new ways of delivering that. So the way I use disruption in regards to the disruptive design method is really about using design as a tool to challenge the status quo of a system, Mm. right? So taking that system's lens, which is that everything is interconnected, therefore interdependent, Mm. and therefore dynamic and dynamically affected by other elements of the system, right? So if you take that perspective and you look at whether it be a cultural condition or a product or a policy, Mm. you can identify where in the system you can apply an intervention mm-hmm. to then disrupt the way that system is playing out. Yeah. So it's yeah. very much about intent yes. to intervene. Yeah. Yeah. And that intent doesn't come from you being like, some people think disruption is to make noise or to make a mess no, or to be or aggressive or, or yeah. yeah. No, not at all. No. It's very yeah. actually much about mm. understanding the dynamics mm-hmm. to then be able to say, this system is operating in this way. So you have this feedback and this dynamic mm. and we want to transform this system so that it's more regenerative or more sustainable or more equitable. Mm-hmm. And so then in order to do that, now we understand the system, we can come in and apply an intervention here or here, and it's going to disrupt the system. Yes, exactly. Right? And just going back to Uber, so Uber, he said it's not disruptive to the taxi industry because Uber, in, a, in fact, is just a better it's taxi just poaching. service. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Uber ride sharing could be seen as disruptive to car ownership. Because that's where mm-hmm. people who wouldn't necessarily buy a car get to it, mm-hmm. get, get from A to B. Yeah, yeah or yeah. like before you had the car mm-hmm. sharing from Uber, it was um, uh, Flex, Flex Car. Flex Car. It was the first and, one. Yeah, yeah. so, and, and these yeah. I think are more of the disruptive startups mm-hmm. because of the fact that, as you say, on, on from Clay Christensen's perspective, they, he's, the founders <clears throat> are identifying an underserved market, mm. people who don't afford, can't afford cars or don't want to own cars or live in the city where parking is a nightmare, uh, but they mm. still need the functionality of getting from A to B or going away for the weekend or yeah. picking up you know, mm. kids from school, whatever. Mm. Um, and so then they're creating an entirely new service model that mm. enables that activity to happen. Yeah. And, and, and also the way I see it is, um, so with the Disruptive Business Network, like a big part of it is meaningful work. And where I think the theory applies to you personally is if, if you follow the normal chain of events, go to school, go to uni, get a good job, promotion, 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 that's like, you know, iPhone 2.0, 3.0, Whereas to disrupt yourself, you have to really, I think, take stock of your values and who you are and your talents, and then maybe you know, forget about your ego and then do something that's meaningful. And that's... Yeah, I would say I'm driven by passion and frustration, right? Mm. Like a kind of slightly unhealthy mix of the two (laughs) Um, because nearly everything I've done Mm. and that has usually led to my personal success or a project success or financial ruin, (laughs) 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 all of the above, has come because I've encountered a system failure that has Mm. just infuriated me, Mm -hmm. right? Even going to design school, I remember Mm. I was, so I remember being like, whatever, 17, whenever you're supposed to make that important life decision about what Mm. the going to do with the rest of your life Mm. and and my friend who was a graphic designer had said you know you should try design because you're really creative blah 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 Mm. and I was like yeah but that sounds boring I don't want to just like 
make ads and he mm. goes well what about products i'm like well yeah remote controls really annoy me mm. and he's like what do you mean i'm like well i don't know why there are so many buttons on there like why mm. and i've always wondered why yeah. and i still don't understand <laughs> why still, why yeah. right i mean i know why now yeah. but it's dumb yeah. it doesn't make any sense it's just yep. like over functionality no one knows how to use them all in fact mm. anytime i pick up a remote i'm like which of the arrows gives me the, the up and down mm. and the volume like yeah, there's three yeah. things i need yeah you know so these kinds of things um, that infuri- infuriating, like why is it so, mm. you know, annoying or frustrating, has driven me a lot. And so mm. then, even when I quit design school and went mm. to study sociology, that was like, well, why are humans such a mess? Like, mm. why does this kid mm. not care, and why do I care? Mm-hmm. And now, what's what? That seems like a profoundly different outcome from the same experience, yep. right? So yep. my life has changed, and this kid's like, whatever, mm. goes about his life, does mm. not care, mm. and that was shocking and surprising and frustrating and so that Mm. drove me to inquire more about that Mm. and how I ended up in systems thinking was also like trying to understand like why how does change happen and why Mm. is it that some changes for the better or worse kind of end up occurring and and others don't don't last Mm. and so that kind of led me into that whole inquiry Mm. around like systems dynamics and understanding so and then a lot of the projects I've done are again like I see something and it infuriates me so much that I then am like (laughs) so driven to like make a thing that does it better or Mm. fixes it or you know and so it's kind of like a a I think you cannot discount fury and frustration and and those feelings to point you in the right direction because I think acting on those is really important like I think creativity has to be driven by something and some people it's like that quest to just like explore and understand and maybe it's a more intrinsic um, motivator. Mm. Whereas I feel like I'm a little bit extrinsically motivated from from a lot of the projects I do because I want to see change. Like I want yeah. to see mm. that change happen in the world around me. Yeah. And w- the point that I realized that I could intervene in the system mm. is that I do know how to create things um, that are usually fun and engaging and colorful and exciting mm. and a bit evocative and they have a transformative effect. Mm. And I figured that out quite young just through a number of little random projects that I did. Mm. And that was able to then build over time mm. to be able to do that at a bigger scale and yep. to kind of drive disruption um, in my version of disruption, which mm. is about, again, that systems intervention to create mm. a better outcome mm. with the intent to see transformation. Yep. Um, so it's been a very interesting journey because I realized like I could help other people make change mm. by creating tools that enable them to make change. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I kind of take my own experience where as by the time I had finished university, mm-hmm. I was working as a research assistant in mm-hmm. one of the universities at RMIT and I was doing projects around sustainable design. Like I kind of achieved a mm-hmm. career position. Mm-hmm. So just to backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, so you you had that experience in design school with the, with the teacher. Right, and, and then I quit design school. You quit design school. Mm-hmm. Quite spectacularly, <laughs> after, of course, a few more disruptive uh, elements. Throw down a smoke bomb and then. No, yeah. I made a piece of uh, industrial art that was very mm-hmm. controversial for our end of year exhibition that they not, told not, me. Not the groping booth, something else. No, okay. it was. Um, 
they told us we had to have a business card holder mm. to like show our work to potential clients and we had to put up renders mm. and I didn't want to because everything I'd created was pretty boring mm. in my view at the time. And so I went to this place called Reverse Garbage in Sydney and I just it's where you can just get things that have just been like from film sets or whatever. Mm. Oh, cool. And I made a business card holder that was ginormous mm. and it was like Imagine like some wire, mm. like sticking out from the wall, mm. and then I threaded old eight millimeter film, and then like the film was dangling, mm. and then I put a little paper clip, and then I like stuck my green business card. So it was like a tree, and you could pluck the business card. Cool. It was huge. Yeah. And it stuck out from the wall. Yeah. Now I didn't realize because I made it at like four in the morning, <laughs> as most design students do, mm. that uh, the film had mm. some kind of mild 1940s porn on it. Ooh. So when I got there with my garbage bag yeah. that it was in yeah. <laughs> and I pulled it out, the teacher, the same one who had to give me the marks on the groping mm. booth, was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> it was so ugly, right? Yeah. It was amazing, but yeah. ugly. And then, of course, one of the boys was like, oh, my God, it's got porn on it, which yeah. it wasn't. It was like a lady in a leopard print, mm. like, bikini rolling around on a couch and she might have taken her bikini off. But mm. also we're talking eight millimeter film. Yeah, so it tiny. was teeny, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm. So in the end, I made a protest and they let me display it. People loved it. Mm. All of my business cards got taken, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because who doesn't want to interact and like pluck business cards? That's, yeah. And then that was the point where I didn't come back because okay. I was encouraged not to. And I yep. also decided this was not the place for me. Mm. But uh, yeah, so I did leave with a little bit of a you know, controversial. Okay. That's, that's a great story. Though. <laughs> and, then, and then why sociology? Was it just... Well, it's mm. interesting. So um, I wanted to study eco design. That mm. was that was what I'd learned about, you yeah. know. And I was that was it. And I so I I knew I had to find somewhere to study that. And at the time, the only place in the world I could find it was in the UK in London. They had mm. there was a school that was teaching it, and I just did not have the resources mm. to go to the UK to study. Mm. And um, and so I had found like on my deep research that there was this website for an organization at RMIT called the Center for Design. Mm -hmm. And there was a button that said, do you want to study eco-design? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes. And I clicked the button and the button would go nowhere. Mm -hmm. Dead link. Mm -hmm. And I, after like a couple of weeks, I, I like every few days went just hoping the button would, would be repaired. Yeah. And I sent an email, nobody mm -hmm. responded. So then in one of my days of desperation, I was like, well, maybe there's this course on like, I'll go deep into the RMIT website and, of mm. course, I found like the normal industrial design program and I spoke to them, but they didn't have like a sustainability bend. And um, and then I found this course called Social Science Environment and I mm. read the like description and I was like, this is perfect. Mm. This is exactly what I want to understand. I want to understand how nature works mm -hmm. and I want to understand why people are messed up mm -hmm. and politics and philosophy. And so, and it was hilarious because I, the day I saw it, the, the applications had closed like two days before. Mm. So I emailed them and they were like, well, if you can get your application in in the next two days, we'll, we'll consider it. Mm. And so within like two weeks, I'd packed my life up and moved to Melbourne to do this wow. course. So yeah. yeah, and it was amazing. It was yeah. really amazing. So RMIT's Social Science Environment Program was mm. just such a rich learning experience for me. Mm -hmm. um, and... How did that differ from design school in terms of the learning experience? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because design school is really fun because it's very proactive and hands-on and there's a lot of like experimenting and making and um, whereas social science school is a lot of thinking and talking and reflecting and discussing and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so it was a very different experience. Like mm -hmm. rather than your hands, it was very much your head. But I, it was like 
so enriching for me because these were all things I cared about. You know, social science is very much about the human condition experience. Mm -hmm. It's a lot about humanities. It's really about this program especially was very much about like how do we address um, human issues, social issues, and how do we also, you know, keep us functioning society and deal Mm -hmm. with all the morals and ethics. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I learned so much. I was petrified of the economics class because remember Mm -hmm. I'd quit maths, Maths, right? And I was sure it was going to involve maths, but it wasn't at all. And it was really, no, it was very much about understanding the mechanisms that motivate behavior Mm -hmm. within the Mm -hmm. economy. And I even have a class in my in my disruptive design method called uh, gamification and game theory, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. is pretty much gamification is the practice of designing things that kind of evoke a gamified response. So they're mm-hmm. interactive. And game theory is what economists do to understand network behavior yep. and humans. And it's mm-hmm. like when you put them together, you're like, oh, the whole world is gamified. Mm-hmm. And every human gamifies their own experience of the world to maximize the mm-hmm. utility of life, right? Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I learned a lot about philosophy and psychology and you know, sociology and all the environmental subjects were super depressing. Mm. We had one environmental scientist lady. She was quite old as well, Irish lady. Every single class, she would end, and then we're going to die. (laughs) (laughs) She had eight or whatever, 12 classes that all the different ways humans are going to die on the mass. (laughs) My favorite was the worms that go under your skin that you could, yeah, no, that was not favorite. It was traumatizing. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. and, but then you you stick around there. You, you I then got a job. So actually, yeah. back to the button. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I, I don't study at that university that that, um, that program, but mm. I go to RMIT and I'm there. And after a f- couple months, I, I find the office somewhere mm. in the buildings yeah. of this center for design, and I knock on the door and I'm like, Hey guys, you have a button that doesn't work. <laughs> it's really frustrating. <laughs> I would like to volunteer to help you fix yeah. buttons that don't work on your website. Mm. And at the time, this guy Tim Grant, who was a life cycle assessment practitioner kind of was like oh well what do you want to do and I'm like Mm. I don't know this life cycle stuff sounds fun Mm. Um, and he was like okay sure I'll take you on and I actually just ran a training with him yesterday for two days he's taught me nearly everything I know about the science behind assessing the impacts of products and services and life cycle Mm. thinking was like also another transformative way of understanding it exposes the hidden life of things Mm. and I got to learn how to do it and then decide I really didn't like doing it Mm. Um, and then there I would helped build the first online life cycle assessment tool for designers that didn't mm. exist. And then after a while, I got very, very frustrated by the inefficiency of a university system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I quit and started my first company at 25. Wow. And that was Eco Innovators? Yeah. 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 Um, and, and was that a consultancy or was it a... Well, I didn't really know what it was, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and to this day, I've now started three companies and one not-for-profit mm. and every single one of them I don't really know what they're going to do when I start them it's kind of a <laughs> feel your way through <laughs> pick your own adventure style business decision making yeah. um, but no I really wanted to create tools and resources that helped elevate sustainability into design mm-hmm. and so <laughs> so I I start this company and actually Tim and mm. I got an office together because mm. he quit his job as well around yep. the same time mm. and we got this office in the city and um, at the same time um the city of Melbourne had put out a competition for finding um, 
a new use for those pillars, you know, the silver yeah, pillars yep. like on Swanson Street. So if you are international, think a tiny one meter silver pillar that closes, but it opens and people used to sell newspapers mm-hmm. and magazines. Mm. But then because of all of the 7-Elevens and the different retail environments in the city, they became, you know, um, redundant. Mm-hmm. And they, but they were a piece of infrastructure that would stayed on the city, but were getting heavily graffitied and just they became like a blight for the city of Melbourne. Mm. So they ran this design competition and I proposed to convert it into a microcosm of sustainably produced local locally uh, produced and sustainably produced products mm-hmm. that would like poach people at Christmas time mm. to buy like you know locally made and more environmentally preferable things mm. um, and so I won it which mm. got me this thing for free for like I can't remember like two years or something mm-hmm. and so I did I converted this one it's um, Swanston and Little Collins yeah. it's now a crepe stand yeah there's right. a crepe stand there's yeah, a so let me tell you <laughs> what happened <laughs> So in the end, I was the only one mm-hmm. who actually did anything with the pillar. Yeah. So it was the only pillar. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, was in 2000 and what, 10, 8, mm-hmm. 7. I can't remember what year it was. Mm-hmm. But um, and the city of Melbourne loved it. Mm-hmm. And so um, then we they basically used it as an example and we helped basically get a new trading policy implemented Mm. that was these micro entrepreneurial activities. Mm -hmm. So because of my pillar, Mm. all of those other pillars got recommissioned as Mm -hmm. micro trading. And so now you have people selling art, crepes, cactuses, you name it. So this was my first experience where I was like, oh shit, you can really make a difference by using, proving through a creative intervention that there's another way of doing things, right? Mm. And the cool thing about that is they are all like micro activities. You know, it's not Mm. like some big brand who's selling their products just a bit further on the street. It's like local kind of artisans or craft people and this French guy who did the crepe stand. Mm. And it's still there. It's been there for like a a decade now. Yes, I know. Yeah. So and Mm. there was like they you know, I've got it somewhere in my archives. Like they basically made like a flyer to promote to the city of Melbourne and they had mm. like a picture of me and my my pillar on the front of it. So yeah, it was a really cool experience. And this, at the same time, I got a grant to create um, an educational tool called The Secret Life of Things, mm-hmm. which was an animation around, um, so YouTube was like just becoming popular at the time. Mm. <laughs> the days, old <laughs> days. <laughs> and yeah. I wanted to make like a short video that explained sustainability to design students because the big issue I saw was that educators were not educated and mm. it's very, the learning gap for them was really high, mm. right? So if you're teaching design, for mm. you to then learn about this life cycle stuff and sustainability was quite big. Mm. So I wanted to fill that gap with very easy to access tools that also taught the educator that didn't mm. just teach the students. So animations are great because it mm. fills time mm. and this one was really funny. Mm-hmm. So it was called Life Psychology <laughs> and it was a cell phone whose name was Mr. Erickson mm. and he had a um, he was having an existential crisis because he was a flip phone mm. and he had been abandoned for a newer model that got a camera and truly this was at the time when cameras just got put into phones. Yeah, wow. And so he mm. goes to see a um, past life regression therapist <laughs> who's called Dr. Fraud. Mm. And he tells he goes through his whole life. So we learn yeah. about his life cycle stages mm. and where he was made and all these minerals. And then he prescribes him uh, a kind of redesign, mm. right? So in these five minutes, you learn all about this the life of the product. You mm. learn about how to think about how to redesign it from the start. Mm. And it's kind of funny and cute. And I had to do all the voices because I didn't have enough budget for that. So it's quite hilarious. Oh, and cool. we won a Melbourne Design Award for it. It 
got put on display in the Leonardo da Vinci Museum in Milan on permanent exhibition. Whoa. And just last week, I got asked for it again for another exhibition. Uh, like it's on, it's in another exhibition. And also the Melbourne Now, my I ended up doing Melbourne Now, which was a big um, mm. exhibition of design and art. Uh, my my animation played there for that whole. It was like a, a kind of showcase of like creative interventions. Yeah, that's so. Your first two things have now have a life of their own. Like yeah, and actually it was interesting because mm. we then ended up collaborating with the Design and Technologies Teachers Association mm. and because I made all of these educational tools around it mm. so bad right now when I look mm. at them. I'd be like, wow, <laughs> Leila. <laughs> Just in the aesthetics, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then mm. that actually got, we got funding from the Department of Education to make a co- ones for high schools because the mm. first one was for university. And then that we were able to work around with them, the Design and Technologies Teachers Association, to get life cycle thinking into the curriculum. So for the DNT national curriculum in Victoria, it has life cycle thinking in it now. Wow. So there's all of these things, yeah, yeah. sure. At the time, you don't realize that that's what's happening. But yep. when I did my PhD, mm. my PhD was on like how to create a disruptive design practice mm-hmm. and or a pro-sustainability practices what and mm. I had to reflect on all of these activities and like understand like what was going on here and it really was about using this kind of creativity to drive change mm-hmm. and so each of these cases and and more like I've got many more yeah. <laughs> examples of projects mm. I made a, a, a design play cards that ended up being used by the UN and you know making things that that make sense to people making them accessible in different formats, mm-hmm. all of these kinds of ingredients that really help you build the ability to make transformative change mm-hmm. in the world around you and to leverage your agency, even if it's small. So like when I started, yep. nobody would give me any money to do anything. Like that $10,000 mm-hmm. grant was like so much money, yeah. right? And I mean, thinking about it now, like 10000 doesn't seem oh my God, no. that much at all. Yeah. No, not at all, mm-hmm. no. And I think that's the same thing, like with the shop and all these other things, like mm. there was like all these little bits of money coming in, which is why I laugh. Like I had no business plan, um, <laughs> just didn't know what I was doing. Um, but, you know, I think that the all of these like experiments mm. really helped me then lead up to like the bigger, bolder, more, yep. you know, kind yeah, of yeah. disruptive things like the unschool um, yep because I had all these micro wins, because mm. that shop was like, I literally just had an idea and I built it myself. Like mm. truly, I, I used to have to put up sheets. Like it was so low rent. Like it was so- Back like, to the blankets. Yeah. Like to, to, to do the build out mm. and we'd go on like a Sunday yeah. and like put up a sheet and then like be in there, like putting little things into, <laughs> it was just so like, it was so yeah. ad hoc, right? But also just this, entrepreneurial drive that you have like what do you attribute that to like what frustration and passion okay. <laughs> so your parents weren't entrepreneurs no my dad's no. An, I mean my dad um, my dad was a uh, is a um, a chemical engineer mm-hmm. he worked on dust control systems or pollution control systems from mm-hmm. factories mm-hmm. so he definitely had like an environmental influence but when I was growing up he had gotten quite obsessed with computers. Mm -hmm. So when they first came out, so, you know, he was like magic boxes. (laughs) And so he actually built a um, a, a customer relations management platform called Efficiency, like in the 80s, and like has had that for years. And now, Mm. possibly because of his daughter's influence, he's like Mm. adding all the ESG criteria Mm -hmm. into it and trying to build like (laughs) this like mastermind of like how to manage assets and, and, you know, like... Anyway, he's very desperate for me to be involved in somehow. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing is, is like, 
uh, you know, he said this to me the other day. He actually said, the difference for me is I always saw what I did as a small business, but you mm. see yourself as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. which is interesting because mm. I think that's a cultural shift in yep. time, right? Where entrepreneurs are a bit riskier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think most people don't make business plans <laughs> until they're forced to. <laughs> <laughs> until you're pitching for money or something. Right, yeah. and this is interesting mm. about that. So mm. I did actually go through a period of trying to raise money when I was in New York, when I had founded the Unschool, mm. and I actually made a very conscious choice not to do that mm. after my experience. And that was because I didn't want to create things that were forced to go like Hockey high, high yeah, and yeah. fast. Mm. I wanted to be able to create things that had a kind of slow build and longevity. Mm. And I think this is partly because of the experiences I'd had, but also because I was w- I was working at the Center for Social Innovation in New York. Mm-hmm. I was actually there, uh, disruptor in residence for six months. Um, great title. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> um, and I could see a lot of the amazing startups who had social uh, motivators mm. get investment and that slowly start to erode. Mm-hmm. And that really worried me that, you know, my... I, it's not. It wasn't about like building the biggest, strongest, fastest, dominating thing. It was about disrupting the mainstream. So in mm. the education startup, it was really about challenging the dominant dominant idea of how we educate, mm-hmm. and also what we choose to educate. So mm-hmm. teaching systems thinking, teaching sustainability, teaching design and creativity mm-hmm. as tools for transformation. Yeah. And so now, like the unschool, which you know we used to run. Ex- in-person experiences until COVID. Mm. And now we have a lot of extensive stuff online. It's eight years old. And, you know, I know that my content from that is being used at universities all over the world, high schools all over the world. Mm. So, like, I just got some screen caps from Cambridge University that are using my stuff. And I'm always, like, hilarious. Because my goal was to get this content taught into... It, the make, my whole philosophy was that standard education system mm. does not teach creativity mm-hmm. or systems or dynamics mm-hmm. or complexity. It teaches reductive, linear. And the reason we have a linear economy, mm-hmm. extractive and exploitative, is because we all learn how to mimic that mm-hmm. com- uh, economy. Yep. So the unschool was about undoing the damage of the mainstream education system and creating these different divergent ways of thinking and different mm-hmm. skills and tools. So the fact that that's happening now mm. is very rewarding because the goal was to... Dis, like demonstrate and if I had tried to do that from within a university I no, do not think I would no, have had the yeah, effect yeah, yeah. that we've had today so uh, all right, so maybe just going back to your timeline then so <laughs> nothing's <laughs> linear nothing's man nothing's linear I know <laughs> and maybe it's my schooling I keep coming back to linear anyway <laughs> um, so with, with eco-innovators then I think because also looking at your timeline like all of this stuff then happens uh, you had like an amazing run in the last seven, eight years. You know, yeah. Just with h- how did you end up going to New York, for example, and starting? Well, so I had Eco Innovators and some hilarious things that happened. Like mm. I'd been invited as a judge on the TV show The New Inventors. Yes. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. That actually got canned yep. not long after I became a judge. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys can figure out what that means. Mm. Um and I had this Melbourne Now and I was doing my PhD and it was coming towards the end. Mm. And I had been running Eco Innovators for like five or six years. And um, I had some clients and I was doing some stuff, but I wasn't mm. getting like, I didn't feel like I was being mm, challenged. And also Australia is a very small marketplace, right? There's 25 mm. million people here. Mm-hmm. And um, so I really had this drive to like, make something big and Mm. meaty and risky but I didn't feel that I was able to do that here or at least I felt like I wanted to be in a place where there was 
more people and more access and more, you know. Mm. So it wasn't New York specifically. I actually just um, told everybody I was leaving and just like booked a one-way ticket to, I actually booked a ticket that went like LA, New York, Berlin. And I was like, mm. one of those places will probably work. <laughs> and um, and I had no right to live in the US at mm. all. Like, mm. And I got to LA and I started meeting with people I knew about making films and around sustainability. Like I was like, I need a new medium. Mm. Like I need a new, bigger way. And so, you know, and then I got to New York and it was hilarious. Mm. Um, like as soon as I got there, like I said, everybody was moving faster than me. And I was mm. like, this I, this is the energy I need to do whatever I'm going to do. So mm. I kind of set up shop there, meaning I just moved there. Mm. Um, and I actually worked, I met uh, Natalie Jermajenko, who I'm a really big fan of, who's mm. a, a quite amazing um, artist and designer at NYU who has done some incredible projects. And if you don't know who she is, I highly recommend looking up her TED TEDx talk. She's quite a, 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 an amazing woman. And um, and she, you know, invited me to be a, a, a visiting scholar at NYU with her and whatever. I kind of hung out with her doing her crazy interventions. And I don't know what happened. One day I just woke up. So it's just kind of hanging, mm, right? Mm. And I just woke up one day and I was like, I just scribbled on a piece of paper the unschool of disruptive design and that was it. And then I just built it. Wow. It was really bizarre. So it came to you in a dream. Scott almost. knows. <laughs> yeah. And then I just and then I just built decks and then I started mm. pitching to like I had worked with Autodesk and Dassault and all these big companies. I was like, give me mm. money to build a school for designers that teaches them how to make change. Mm -hmm. And they were all like, What a sweet idea. Yeah. No, we're not gonna <laughs> give you money. And I'm like, I made this really sexy deck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Doesn't yeah. that deserve some money? And then of course that it was like completely out of the, the mainstream system. It was Absolutely. It was, and at the beginning, it had all these, like, it was like a co working slash co living. It was all of the things. Mm. So it was a bit too much, I think, at the mm. beginning. But I had this vision of like bringing creatives together, like myself. I was like, well, if I have these challenges and I've had to overcome them through like a lot of hard work, surely there's a bunch of other people out there who feel the same way. Mm -hmm. So what if I take what I've learned and make a really amazing experience and connect people and da da da? So then, yeah, I just kind of started building it and did it anyway but I have mm. a really funny story actually so so it's the unschool so UN dash school of mm. disruptive design that was the original name mm -hmm. and so when I went to register it with the like as a business in New York um the department of whatever comes back and says you can't register it as the unschool because it sounds too much like the UN so you have to get like some approval from the UN to use UN dash schools <laughs> So I was like, I'm, I'm, that's not going to happen. I have no yeah. contacts to the UN. Mm. So I was like, okay, well, let's just register the dis Disrupt Design as the mm. name. And mm. so I accidentally created a design agency and a school at the same time. <laughs> like, that's wow. how it happened. Because I was wondering. Yeah, it was just a kind of accidental thing. Yeah. And then it was cool because I had done, I had, I had keynoted the AIGA conference, mm. and which is the American in, um, Graphic Designers Association. And they had this beautiful office on 23rd Street. And so I just kind of like, went there one day and I was like, hi, I have this crazy idea and nobody's giving me any money and I don't really have any money, but would you let me use your beautiful gallery space to do a launch party in a couple of months? And they were like, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. and then it was hilarious because mm. I also knew nobody in New York when I showed up. I knew mm. like one person mm. and we ran this on the 5th of September, 2014. We had a launch party with 145 designers from New York show up mm. and we made this whole interactive experience, which was like when you showed up, you got like, a little bit of a word that was zigzag cut and you had to mm. find the other person to match it. And then there was a massive find a word on the wall. 
So then once you found your person, you then had to find it. I know, I'm really into experiences. And it was like yeah. super fun. Yeah. And I just basically was like, I've launched these two things now. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be great. And we're going to do stuff like mm. education and experience. So like, talk to me, like, let's mm. see. And then I just started doing so much stuff. Like we, I was able to collaborate with like, all of these different organizations and I was running these design like drink nights, drink and design mm. nights, which were like challenges. And I was running these secret dinner parties and I was just, I ran a park demolition tea party because mm. they were demolishing a park in Brooklyn. It's like anyone who would collaborate on something experiential about design and sustainability. I was like, mm. let's do it. And then it just kind of evolved into having designing a bigger experience and bringing people together. Mm. And so that's when I ran the first fellowship, mm -hmm. which happened in New York in 2000 and, 14. How did I do that in the same year? Maybe it was 2015. Oh, I'm not good with numbers, yeah. as we already discussed. Yeah. Um, so anyway, mm. and I remember just putting like this call out to the internet, mm -hmm. right? Of like, are there courageous people who will pay two and a half thousand dollars to come for a seven day experience that has no, that it's all secret. Mm. <laughs> you just yeah. have to come yeah. and be me. willing. Yeah. <laughs> I won't kidnap yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> And it was amazing. Like, yeah. it was amazing. And mm. we got so many applicants. And I think we ended, I wanted wow. to have 10 in the beginning. I think mm. we ended up with 16 or 18 people from all over the world. Mm. And even Columbia University heard about it. And they mm. sent a film crew to follow us for the whole week, which is on the internet somewhere. Yeah. I lost my voice. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, and it was absolute magic right like mm. so i designed like a menu of experiences that mm -hmm. played out like that you didn't get to know what was happening which is very hard for a lot of people yeah. but it gave me a lot of flexibility to adapt to the group and of course like i had a small team and and we just and we had all these different mentors that came in like natalie and all these other fascinating people like the guy who started etsy.org mm -hmm. just come in and like share their knowledge and then we would have like experiential and then food and then like like highline interactive da, 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 like everything mm. it was just like cognitive experiential like explosion it was amazing it really mm. was amazing and that was it so then I did 10 of those in 10 different countries and the way I did it was <sighs> yeah and the way we did it was that an alumni who'd come to a program mm. invited us to their country mm. and they became the producer and then we would get, we would do all the admin and bring, and then they would invite yeah. us, and then we would bring a small team, and they'd get a team, and we'd fund them, and then they would host yep. the whole experience. So I saw you did one in Mumbai, which is my yeah. hometown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we did, mm. we did New York, then we went to Mexico City, mm. and then we went to Sao Paulo, and then we went to. Uh, where did we go after San Paolo? Then we went to San Francisco, Melbourne. We did it here. Mm -hmm. We did one in Christchurch. We did one in um, Mumbai, mm. uh, Cape Town. And we just did one in Kuching before COVID. Damn. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so then I bought a farm to run programs on. Yeah. Because I wanted to, that whole designing the experience and being able to maximize it and everything. Mm. Um, but the traveling to all these different destinations was a little exhausting. Mm. Um, and also like, yeah, I mean, you can't do the same thing forever. Like mm. that's always been my philosophy. And mm. I like round numbers and whole things. So it's like mm. 10 seems like a good number to, you know, we were going to run an 11th, but then mm. COVID happened. And that was because one of our alumni invited us to um, Cochabamba in um, Peru. And we were very desperate to go to, to like some of these um, economies that are not really mm -hmm. exposed. And so that was going to be where we went next. But unfortunately, mm. we weren't able to do that. So, Wow. And how did... 
Because I know, like, you've done a TED main stage talk, mm-hmm. and that's got more than, I think, two million views or something. Something, I don't know. Yeah. It's like t- almost 10 years old now. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. How, how did how did TED hear of you? Yeah. yeah. So that year, which was 2013, TED mm. ran a global talent search. They'd never done it before. And it was called The Young, The Wise, and The Undiscovered. And mm-hmm. they asked existing TED speakers to, like, reach out to their networks and kind of tap people and say like, hey, you should apply. And mm. that happened to me through mm. a colleague that I knew. And you had to make an, a 60 second video of like your idea mm-hmm. and then submit it. And then the curator of TED, Chris Anderson and Kelly Sotul, who was second in charge and a team traveled mm. to 14 countries, I think. And oh, they had wow. like a selection of yeah. people that they watched. Um, so like from thousands, they got hundreds and then they mm. picked 30 people. Mm. And I was selected and went to Sydney during the TEDx event and um, did it then. And it was pretty nerve-wracking because you basically had to do a practice run in front of Chris Anderson, which is pretty intimidating, and then then get on the stage and, like, Mm. do your actual – you were only allowed six minutes, I think. Mm -hmm. And then they – you know, you waited, like, four or five months to know if you had been selected. And Mm. um, I was selected, you know, one of 30 people from around the world. And they gave me 18 minutes, which in TED world is, like – a pretty big accomplishment because it's mm. the maximum number of minutes you can get, mm-hmm. but also pretty horrifying because... <laughs> you got 18 minutes. Yes. <laughs> on the red dot. Yes. Yeah. In front of, like, all yeah. of these very, very wealthy and famous Americans. Yeah. And not many Australians had mm. done main stage TED Talks at that stage. Main stage TED Talks, like, the people there pay, like, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to be there. So yeah, and they're, like, Bill yeah. Gates and mm. famous people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just wandering around. Wow. Yeah. And... and do you think then that set you up for... I think that TED gave me great exposure as they yeah. capitalize off that. You know, they don't pay their speakers and that's kind of part of their whole thing because they are such a big platform mm. um, and a community. And, of course, like, you definitely... People respect have respect for your ideas if you are selected to do a TED Talk and that's one of the other really good things about it is their curation is incredible. Like, they mm. do such a good job of curating mm. different ideas and opinions and controversial but also they really help the speakers make quite an amazing talk. Mm-hmm. So, that is unto itself a kind of like... Um, like uh, validation. Mm. So for sure that helped me get exposure to a wider, broader community and audience. Mm. But like my TED Talk has not been watched that many times. Like mm. if I was talking about a social issue or relationships or any of the things that we all just can't help but, you know, watch, then it mm. would be like 20 million views. Yeah. I'm talking about refrigerators and kettles <laughs> being badly designed, and right? plastic <laughs> and paper bags. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it's definitely mm. obscure in that sense, right? And I've done a couple of TEDx's since then, mm. um, which have been really fun to, like, challenge myself to find, you know, my one of my favorites is the How Do You Value Invisible Things, which is much that. more yeah. about economics. Um, Pineapples and diamonds. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but it's kind of my thing to find everyday mm. objects and embed narratives in them or mm. counterintuitive narratives. That's like what my like magic source is. Yep. And I love it because mm. I can't help but question things around me. Like it's mm. kind of what hap- has happened my whole life. But yeah, I think it's definitely been a great um, elevator. But um of my ideas and, you know, my my capacity. But I don't think it's the driving thing that's made me successful. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that a lot of the projects I've done, like I've built a lot of different projects, right? So mm-hmm. they've had, they, they have like these weird lives of their own. Mm-hmm. And it's really bizarre how then people become quite like, like I have a lot of people who are really into my educational tools, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the Circular Classroom or we collaborated with the UN on the Anatomy of Action. So, yeah, and I mean, for me, it's like 
any way that I can help other people make change. So the TED Talk was definitely a way of challenging people to think differently about the pro problems that we face and how mm -hmm. we solve them. And like now I get to work with like refrigerator companies and mm -hmm. help them challenge them to design refrigerators differently. You know, yeah. it's like, so yeah. Um, so, so just to, uh, I suppose, you know, this is my, uh, again, my linear thinking, but with the, with the disruptive design thing and the unschool. Uh, yeah, if back you could, in New York, yeah. Yeah, if you could, I suppose, maybe box them up and tie a ni nice little neat bow on them, just in terms of what they do now. What they do now. Well, yeah. when I started, I didn't really know, as I think we've mm. now discovered is my general way of doing things. <laughs> yeah. Like, I bought a farm and didn't know what I was going to do with that either. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the disrupt, we, we take commissions to design interventions, mm -hmm. you know, so sometimes we're running education experiences with engineering teams for some of the world's biggest companies. Mm -hmm. um, other times we're collaborating with Oxfam to design, um, you know, workshops to help elevate uh, people in emerging economies or we've designed a toolkit with them. Um, uh, we, we did a report called The Decade of Disruption, which mm -hmm. you would love, which mm -hmm. is all about um, looking at the, the megatrends of this decade for, mm -hmm. for an interesting company in the UK. So we're basically quite selective. We take projects. We designed an entire learning system for Thailand mm -hmm. for a, like an, um, a, an education system. So it's called the Changemaker Lab. And we went out and like created a really culturally appropriate tool that would help young people think differently about themselves and the world around them and make change, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So we do these kind of fun, meaty projects that like – are going to have an impact and effect. And actually Disrupt has a kind of rule that um, any client we sign up, they have to commit to giving away 20% of the content we create to them for free, mm -hmm. for them for free. Mm -hmm. So even if it's a commercial product or something, we have to make sure that we take a chunk of it and then make something that then can be distributed in a, to help like give back to the community in some way. And so that's been mm -hmm. a really interesting thing that we've had we always negotiate and mm. i think it has quite an interesting effect because these companies are like oh yeah why didn't we why don't we do that like yeah. you know <laughs> um mm. so yeah that's disrupt mm. um and disrupt runs the unschool mm -hmm. which is an experimental knowledge lab for adults mm. and it's still experimental even though it's been going for eight years and as i explained you know we we ran in-person programs right. but mm. now we um predominantly have an online learning system with over 100 courses classes handbooks toolkits mm. a bunch of free stuff a bunch of paid stuff you can take the entire disruptive design methodology which is 12 units that i explain things like gamification and game theory or language and influence or mm. systems thinking systems mm -hmm. intervention sustainability mm -hmm. sciences um cognitive biases or you can take a learning track um, and get certified as a practitioner an mm. unmasters or an educator um or you can just take a class in like what is life cycle thinking mm -hmm. um and yeah i write we've written a bunch of handbooks that are available there on like the disruptive design method or mm -hmm. i just recently wrote a new one I even wrote a cookbook on how to love vegetables oh, That's wow. just, that was a covid yeah. COVID side, <laughs> COVID therapy project. That's what it will call it. Yeah. <laughs> Lockdown therapy project. But yeah, so the Unschool is really a community as well. We have an app where people mm. who are tracking or, you know, really deeply into becoming, you know, disruptive designers or creative people, you don't have to be a designer, right? Like, mm. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people, community development and so forth. Mm. Um, and then I actually have a new project. Cool. <laughs> 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 Which... It's taking me a lot longer. That mm. Every time I do a new project, I'm like, this will be like six months, 18 months later. <laughs> you're like, okay, I think I still have another six months. Mm. Um, called Swivel Skills. So it's a new project for Disrupt Design. Mm -hmm. um, and it is basically a, a, an e-learning platform to help major companies and SMEs um, level up the skill set 
across mm. their entire workforce to address the sustainability, climate literacy and circular economy challenges. So it's basically an asynchronous synchronous learning mm. platform um, that really chunkifies the key pieces of information so that people have a core language. They understand what like net zero means. They understand mm. what product stewardship is, as well as why and how to apply it in a business context. Mm. Because there is absolutely no content that applies to businesses transforming to sustainability that understands the business case and needs. Mm -hmm. So mm. my hypothesis is that other times that we've had big transformation in society, mm. in business I mean, has been um, the OHS movement, mm -hmm. occupational health and safety, and mm. then the shift to digital. Mm -hmm. So both times every company had to figure out how to train all their staff mm -hmm. to uh, be able to have the skills to either not kill themselves or their <laughs> colleagues or to figure out how to use the internet. Yep. Right? <laughs> and both times they essentially lent on service mm. providers to create easy to understand learning systems that could be done mm. as onboarding or PD within a company. And that's basically what Swivel and Skills is. Some hilarious videos to go along with it. <laughs> yeah, so this is actually really fun. It's uh, I, I Now that I just, since that first one, I just do all the voiceovers. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is really fun because so it's a, like very chunkified, but mm. also there's all these like little drag and drop interactive uh, learning quizzes and stuff. Mm. Like I love making things sexy and fun and yeah. it's definitely that, right? It's beautifully mm. designed. And so we're launching the foundation program, which is mm -hmm. basically sustainability, climate literacy and the circular economy. And then we have all these additional modules. So depending on what industry you're in, if, if you're in finance, you need to know about ESG. If you're in the building sector, you need to know about the mm -hmm. building council regulations. And then also the changing regulatory landscape is happening so quickly right now. Like the European mm -hmm. Union just brought on like seven new legislative frameworks that will go into effect in 2024 mm -hmm. about substantiating green claims. So how to not do greenwashing, mandatory reporting on sustainability. So like that's going to affect 50,000 companies in the mm -hmm. next year. And there's nowhere for these people to learn how to do these things so yeah. <laughs> that's like my next massive project and we've been working on that now and hopefully yeah 2023 will be will be live and helping companies mm. level up their workforce amazing and uh yeah I'll, we, we link to all of this in in the show notes but just to bring this to wrap this up but thank you so much firstly for doing this and coming down to my cellar padded cell <laughs> Between me and the phone, yeah, <laughs> which is not even a phone. No, it's not. It needs a dust as well. And it, it, it's kind of amazing how your story has come full circle, I think, you know, from the five-year-old who's worried about the ozone layer to then chairing at the UN, you know, a panel of various environment ministers from around the world. You know, that's... That's not full circle, I don't know. Yeah, and also, actually, you yeah. know how I said when I founded the, the, the U.S. company, I was had to have this U.N. Mm. Well, so then when I got named Champion of the Earth, mm. I started working with the U.N. a lot more. Mm. And so many people <laughs> would say, oh, my God, I love the U.N. school. <laughs> These are people who work for the U.N. And I'd be like, okay, we have to really change the branding. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny, though. Like, yeah. you know, that also came full circle as well, right? Yeah, like, wow. So the UN School of Disruptive, no, no yeah, it's but it's funny. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> and I would tell them the story about mm. how I couldn't make it like the official name. So mm. you know, uh, cool. So just to finish up, this is usually the last question. So this this is the On Meaningful Work podcast. And uh, so, what does the term On Meaningful Work mean to you? Is there off meaningful work as well? <laughs> Could be. Yeah, that's another podcast. Well, there's an on off. <laughs> um, well, I mean. Meaningful, I guess, mm. for me, really is about um, 
what matters. Mm-hmm. I've actually always thought about words like matter, mm-hmm. which can define physical things mm-hmm. or non-physical things that are of importance or mm-hmm. have weight mm-hmm. or that exist because we talk about matter. There's matter in the universe and what matters or doesn't matter. And I think so for me, like um, I personally uh, de- desperately want the things that I do in the world to matter mm-hmm. either to me or to other people. And that's not to say like that when I say desperately, I mean, it's cause I want, if you're going to invest energy and resources in things, you would hope that they would have meaning embedded in them mm-hmm. um, or that they have the opportunity to have meaning ascri- ascribed to them over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel very fortunate that I had that experience in design school and mm-hmm. that I didn't go on to, mm-hmm. to be, you know, a designer who created crap to idiots mm-hmm. and then had a, revelation when I was 30 you know I was very fortunate that at a young age Mm. I had this like deep profound like passion be ignited Mm. and it helped steer the direction of my career um, and continues to in a way that is very meaningful for me Mm. Um, exhausting Mm. at times you know Um, but also that uh, is extremely rewarding because Mm. I get to um, engage with so many people and learn so many things from mm-hmm. all these people that I engage with and to see that change happen from like these small creative ideas that ha- mm-hmm. then have these um, sometimes big impacts and sometimes just beautiful little transference. Mm-hmm. So for me, meaningful work is really about um, applying your creative um, uh, kind of essence to the things that you uh, frustrated by. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then hopefully having a transformative experience for yourself and the r- people around you or the people who get to engage with it. Yeah. I, I think that's a beautiful place to end, Leila. So, again, thank you so much. My really pleasure. Thanks it. for the fascinating conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying and are learning from this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. A great zero-cost way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are feeling extra generous, it would be great if you could leave a comment or feedback on our Apple Podcast or YouTube pages. Or you could email your comments and feedback to me directly at rahul at disruptivebusinessnetwork.com. That's R-A-H-U-L at disruptivebusinessnetwork, all one word, dot com. Finally, a big shout out to our producer Dan Scahill for his work on the keys and to Vashti Civil for writing the original music for our theme. Until next time, this is your host Rahul Sohn signing off. Bye.